Um, being with you on Sunday mornings really is the highlight of my week. Um, I love the feedback that I get. Just kidding, that was a joke for you. <laughs> We're continuing with our series on the book of Revelation. It's been a lot of fun uh, for me. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. This week is week 21, and these are trumpets of judgment. This is part one of three. We're going to break this up into three separate weeks. So as you guys know, my childhood team since 1976 was my beloved Tampa Bay Buccaneers. <clears throat> Two years ago, I got an incredible privilege to watch them in our own home stadium uh, commence biblical-level judgment on the Kansas City Chiefs in the Super Bowl. <laughs> Being there in person in the stadium during COVID was an amazing opportunity, and I had this elevated perspective of watching the whole game play out. I could see the whole field at all times. I could see what was happening. I was surrounded by a multitude, watching, celebrating, cheering every act of judgment from the Bucks visited on the Chiefs. When the game was over, I was walking out of the stadium, elated, feeling like I could never see anything better as a football fan. And driving home, though, the first thing I did was I turned on the radio to listen to the expert analyst. I was thirsty for their opinion of how judgment on the field was carried out. Then I got home around midnight, and immediately I turned on the TV to watch the game recorded. I was up till three. But why did I do that? I wanted every detail. I wanted the close-ups of the field cameras of all the plays that I cheered for and some I cried for, don't judge me, in the stadium. <clears throat> and I saw things on TV that I couldn't see in the stands. <clears throat> like the Chiefs' futile attempt to bring back order to the game and their bitterness that overcame them on the sideline as they realized it was futile. I saw the repeated cycle. Whenever they made a first down or something else, bam, more judgment from our beloved Buccaneers. And then I saw the close-ups of the joyful Bucks on the sideline celebrating the total victory. It was like being there all over again except from a different angle. This is how you read the cycles of judgment in Revelation. It's the same event from different elevations, different angles, and different perspectives. Last week, we saw, <clears throat> as we closed up the seven seals, we saw how one of the things that came out of the seven seals were these seven trumpets. And later on, we will see seven bowls come out of the seventh trumpet. This is a Jewish literary device within almost all Jewish apocalyptic literature to describe that the same event is taking place, but they're giving you a new perspective. So this week, we're going to start these trumpets. We're only going to look at trumpets one through four because five and six are so unique and so descriptive, I want to study them with you separately. But here's our passage for this week from Revelation chapter eight, starting in verse six. <clears throat> now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. These were thrown upon the earth. One third of the earth was burned up. One third of the trees were burned up and all the grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and one third of the sea became blood. 
One-third of the living creatures in the sea died. One-third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and fell on one-third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, and one-third of the water became Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and one-third of the sun was struck, and one-third of the moon, and one-third of the stars, so that one-third of their light might be darkened, and one-third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise one-third of the night. And then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Yeah, I know that's what I said when I was reading it this week. Woo. There's some very important history in this passage. I've called this, second, this section Trumpets in Egypt. First of all, I want you to see that <clears throat> this vision has a very clear connection, an undeniable connection to the story of the ten plagues on Egypt in the book of Exodus. You cannot separate the two. You can find those plagues on Egypt in Exodus chapter 7 through chapter 12. Ten plagues listed from God on Egypt. The water, the pests, the livestock, the sickness, the sun and the stars darkened. And here's what would happen. As John's readers were reading this, they would have immediately seen the obvious connection to the story in Exodus. Now, for today, for us, it requires some work for us to uncover exactly what they would have seen immediately right away. This is why historical context is so critical. For example, let's say it was reversed, and they read a scroll from our day, and it said Tom Brady is the goat. They would ask, why is this man Tom considered a sacrificial scapegoat? Why is he considered an animal? Well, this is odd. Was he actually a goat? Was it a pet? They wouldn't understand because they would need historical context to understand what we mean. So the plagues in Egypt were also a warning to Pharaoh. Let Israel leave Egypt. Let them out of slavery or you will face judgment until you do. But notice the plagues, if you go back to that story in Exodus, this is critical. The plagues didn't just punish Pharaoh. Each plague was designed to directly challenge the fallacy and the illegitimacy of all the gods that the Egyptians revered, one by one. For example, the Egyptians worshipped the god of the Nile, the river. It was a big symbol of their success. They had a god for the sun. You see, all third of that was blocked out. They had a god of the sky, the star called Wormwood. They had a god of the earth. They had fertility gods, all symbols of the sources of their power and prosperity. And one by one, the things that Egypt put all their confidence, all their hope, all their trust in were placed on the verge of destruction. And as horrific as the plagues were, you'll notice they weren't total judgment. They were all one third, partial providing opportunity for Pharaoh to repent. And then Pharaoh, though, for some reason refused until the very last tenth plague to let Israel go. And we'll talk about the tenth plague next week. 
But then after Pharaoh lets Israel go, what does Pharaoh turn around and do? Now nah, I changed my mind. He decides to try to pursue Israel and capture them again as they are leaving Egypt. And we know the story of the, the Red Sea parting and all that stuff. Now, why would Pharaoh do that? Why would he go through all those ten plagues, finally let Israel go, and then go after them again? After God had shown his power, after God had shown all this thing, obedience seems to be the only rational response. It seems so stubborn and so foolish. But here's the sad reality. Jewish slavery was crucial to Egypt's economic and military success as an empire. And just like humanity without Jesus today, all Pharaoh had was his world, his kingdom. Egypt was his everything, and he just couldn't see himself letting it go. So again, notice these trumpets are all limited to a scope of one-third It's a warning shot. It's a call to repentance. More on that later. I also don't want you to see there's something else they would have noticed. Is these symbols. uh, You guys click on that for me. It's not moving forward. Symbols of warfare. So John's readers were no strangers to the brutalities of Roman warfare. Remember, the Roman Empire was brutal in the first century. As a matter of fact, most of John's readers probably experienced this brutal warfare. And just like the Egyptian plagues, these symbols in historical context would have been immediately recognized by the readers and connected to Roman style of warfare. Because when the Romans invaded a country, they would torch the fields. They would torch the trees. They would torch the houses and dwellings. And the smoke, there's stories about this written in ancient literature. The smoke would be so thick it would block out the sun. And then Rome would also make sure they destroy the country's navy. The ability for any invaded country to feed or supply their own army. They would disrupt the economy by killing livestock, poisoning drinking water, all those sources, destroying fisheries, industries, all things like that. Now listen, Rome would not totally wipe a country out. They would keep something there so that there's a reason to still possess the land once the war is over, some sort of spoils of war. Do you remember, by the way, the four horsemen and the seals shouting, do not harm the oil and the wine? Another example of partial judgment. So after all this, when Rome was done invading and going through this blitzkrieg that they would use, the people who weren't killed became wholly reliant and subservient to Rome. So that's the history of today's passage. What about the theology? I want to talk about the trumpets of judgment. So understand that these trumpets are the same judgments described in the seven seals, but from a new angle with different details. Remember, as we've gone through the seals, that they were designed to be a comfort to us, a reassurance, symbols to God's chosen, and reminders that redemption and the plan of redemption in the scroll is being carried out. Assurance God is seeking out and separating his chosen redeemed from the world, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. But the trumpets are different. They are a loud, disturbing, frightening, sudden, piercing, out of nowhere sign. This is how the unredeemed will see the plan of redemption. The seals bring hope for the redeemed, but the trumpets declare loudly the futility, the hopelessness for those who refuse to repent. Now, the question then becomes, are these trumpets literal 
or symbolic. Now, the plagues in Egypt were definitely literal, but here they're described as sort of like a cosmic symbolism. Remember, this is very common in Jewish apocalyptic literature. We talked about this in the first two weeks of our series. For example, here's a proof that it's definitely symbolic. If one-third of the sun was truly darkened, I know it sounds nice in August in Sarasota, okay? (laughs) Maybe like, oh, one-third of the sun, just a nice cloud cover on a hot summer day, or maybe like a cool shade. No, if one-third of the sun was darkened, this would make Earth completely uninhabitable. Our atmosphere would rival Jupiter or Saturn with temperatures lower than 100 degrees below zero. Another example of this is this symbolism of this star called Wormwood that poisons the water, making them bitter. Wormwood was actually a root, a shrub with a bitter aromatic taste. A state of source or bitterness or grief is also how it's used in Scripture. Look at Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, uh, uh, Proverbs 5, 3 and 4, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. It's a symbol of bitterness, a metaphor also for the spiritual consequences of sin on the heart and the world. Sin and refusal to repent brings resentfulness, disappointment, anger. And the scripture is very clear. Those emotions are also part of God's judgment on evil and the unrepentant. Question, have you ever been so angry and so bitter at someone, but you were powerless to fight back? Do you know that feeling? You were just forced to eat the bitterness? This is what drove at the heart of Pharaoh's refusal to repent, to be obedient to God. It is why even today, some people in the world resent. They don't just not believe in the gospel. They resent the gospel. The call to repent is not met with, obedience, or even ambivalence. Some respond to it with raised fists of rage and rebellion and resentment. But there's something else that's going on here with these judgments. God is preparing the land. The last verse in our passage today says, Woe, woe, woe to those who are still on the earth after these judgments, because you have three more trumpets to go. One through four are just a warning shot. You know, these warnings to repent and obey and taste the grace and mercy that Jesus offers are still active today. These are all partial judgments, the one-third that's all throughout this passage. These are not the final complete judgments that we see on the day of the Lord. That's a later trumpet. But like Egypt, the world cannot see the sovereign hand of God preparing the earth for something. And just like in Egypt, it is the same thing. It's a great exodus of his people. From the world's perspective, they just can't understand why or where these judgments are coming from. But their hope is that somehow they can fix it. Why did God send plagues to Egypt? The same reason God allows these cycles of judgment in the world today. He is calling out his redeemed. He is preparing the land for the deliverance of God's people 
to a promised place. So that's the theology of this passage. Now let's look at the personal section. There's some hard stuff in here. The fact of the matter is there is a world full of pharaohs. This was the sermon preview this week. The gospel is the only escape from an evil world trapped in an endless cycle of destruction, bitterness, and disobedience. The world thinks that if it just tries harder, becomes smarter, becomes more unified, that we can fix all the problems that we have in this place. As a matter of fact, humanity has always believed that peace and prosperity and unity are within its grasp if we just apply the right wisdom and the right philosophy. And without realizing it, the wisdom of this world really only has one goal. Undeniable cycles of judgment we see around us today. These ideologies strive to preserve power, preserve resources, preserve prosperity. Have you ever noticed, though, it seems like every nation, no matter what their type of government, is in a constant battle? None of them work. But that is really the end goal of any ideology. It's man somehow subconsciously or consciously attempting to strike the right balance of freedom, power, greed, and moralism. Even today, the world is blind to the futility, the futility of our modern-day Egyptian gods. You know what some of them are? Don't get mad at me. <laughs> Democracy. Socialism. Capitalism. Anarchism. Libertarianism. Nationalism. Wokeism. Whatever ism you want to attach. Others. All of them might offer some sort of limited temporary success, but in the end, all of these ideologies will ultimately fail. And when they do, they leave behind disappointment, bitterness, resentment. Why? Because humanity is infected by depravity. And this depravity renders us all incapable of redeeming this world on our own. Ecclesiastes 1.9. You guys will click that forward for me. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Let me explain this passage. Each generation has this new idea for how society can finally find the answer to inequity and injustice. Really, every generation comes up with something new, they think. The world has never really tried this before, at least not the way it should be tried. I got news for you. Yes, it has tried. There is nothing new under the sun. Well, if we did it the right way, this time it would work. No, no, it won't. How vain and empty is the hope that perhaps maybe if somehow the world stumbles on the right ideology and keeps it pure, then in your lifetime or your kid's lifetime, humanity might really actually create the world you've always dreamed of? Is that really what you hope for? Thousands of years of human history say it's probably not going to happen. Look at this passage in Ecclesiastes 7, 
Verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Here's another problem. Some humans have nostalgia for a past human wisdom. That is just as foolish as hope in man's new modern wisdom. Maybe you have an idealistic view of a time, for example, in America or the world. Maybe you long for, quote unquote, the good old days. For the sake of your kids, do you hope for a time you believe was better than today? Well, guess what? That's exactly what Pharaoh wanted. That's what Pharaoh thought. He just wanted to go back to the days that were good for him and his family. This is also a deception. This is also futile, empty, selfish hope. These cycles of failures were active back then in the good old days too. Why do you think the good old days ended? <laughs> There's a reason they're the good old days. Because they weren't really that good. Jeremiah 8, 9. The wise men shall be put to shame. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? As the plagues exposed Egyptian gods as futile, these trumpets remind us as believers of the futility of hoping in human wisdom. Sadly, though, just like Pharaoh, humanity's natural inclination is to cling to the wisdom of this world. And as a result, many become angry at God. If God is real, why would he allow this? And this is part of that bitterness cycle that we've been talking about. After thousands of years, why can't humanity see the rational, logical truth? And here it is. You ready? Revolution isn't the answer. Redemption is. You see the difference? Yet man puts all its hope in revolution. Changing society. But like Pharaoh, the world is unable to see this undeniable cycle of failures as a warning to repent. Hebrews 13, 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We'll study that later on in Revelation, by the way, in detail. 18, 19, 20. See, those of us who are able to read the book of Revelation, if we have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, we can see it. We can understand what God is doing. By God's grace, these cyclical judgments don't leave us hopeless and bitter, but they leave us hopeful and waiting for our deliverance. We understand these cycles of judgment reveal the folly of man's wisdom and they point us to God's wisdom. These cycles reveal the wisdom of man is hopeless and that the gospel is our only path to redemption. We don't need to be like Pharaoh or the rest of the world who is obsessed with temporary illusions of prosperity. Empty promises of future progress. We don't need to be obsessed with futile efforts to redeem this world through politics, philosophy, sociology, or money. 
We don't need to waste too much time and emotion and effort on the futile earthly solutions to what is actually a spiritual problem. These trumpets remind Christians of the futility of man's wisdom. Let them remind you today that you have been given a different perspective. These trumpets remind you these cycles of judgment are preparing for us something far beyond what this life could ever offer. The undeniable evidence of the cycles of judgment teach you your hope is not in even this land. Your hope is in the Lamb. Your hope is in the day of the Lord. The day when we will be delivered from this feckless Egypt into the promised land. Ask Jesus for discernment to see the futility of the world's greatest hopes. And ask him to give you patience to endure it until he returns. Jesus... We're thankful that you've called us out of darkness into light to help us understand these trumpets aren't judgment on us. But in reality, they are another perspective on you opening up the seal of redemption. Lord, we confess to you that many times we do get distracted by the world's politics, philosophies, ideologies, sociologies, all the isms. And Lord, we understand you've put us in this world, in this place, because we have things that we have to do. And, and we live within those systems. <clears throat> you've given us instruction for how to live in those systems in First and Second Peter. But at the same time, Lord, we confess to you far too often we put way too much hope in these things. Way too much hope in these people that say they can lead us. Lord, we want to be good citizens. We want to be law-abiding. But our hope points to something different. Our hope points to something better. Lord, we pray that you would please give us discernment to see the futility of the world's greatest hopes. Lord, give us the patience to endure these cycles until you take us home or until you return. And if it be your will, Lord, it's okay with us if you return today. <laughs> we thank you for this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Church, we love you. Have a great week.